So this morning, as we approach our text, as we continue through um, essentially the same scenario that we began last week in verse 37, and it follows all the way through what has been read for us this morning, verse 52, we could say in the simplest of terms regarding this text, if we were to enter into it and kind of be a fly on the wall, we could say uh, in the simplest terms, the dinner party has taken a very awkward turn to say the absolute least and the most simplistic. Um, Remember this scenario at work here as it just is going to turn to get only increasingly more awkward. The Pharisee here, of which we don't... The highlight seems to be... I I shouldn't say highlight, but, but an off note of the text seems to be that the Pharisee, because Luke doesn't indicate to us anything other than the Pharisee asked... Jesus to come and dine in his home. So he doesn't seem to highlight any kind of ill motive on the part of the Pharisee, technically. Um, And so that serves to highlight the sense of the incredible awkwardness at the moment when Jesus begins to speak. Um, The fact is, he asks Jesus to come and dine with him in verse 37 after he hears something that he's not so sure of in verses 33 through 36. While Jesus is speaking, 37 says, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. Um, Now again, perhaps for clarification purposes, um, he wants to inquire more. Maybe it is to sniff Jesus out and find a point to to, uh, gotcha moment with him, but we just simply don't know. Nonetheless, as the text develops, before the food is even served, Jesus had managed to offend not only the host, but every single Pharisee in the room. This is before what would be perhaps somewhat cordial affair, or so perhaps the Pharisee thought. Jesus had managed, and quite purposely so as we looked at the text last week, to offend not only the host who had invited him, but every Pharisee who gathered around table. You recall just how badly, and and that serves our text, because really it's scene one from last week and scene two of the same dinner party. Look at what he said to them in verse 40, just so you get the feel of what's, just how tense and awkward the room would have felt. Um, Jesus uses an opportunity just to bring up, uh, you know, a, a quick transition to get into really what he wants to talk about, verse 39. Now, you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. How about that for a conversation starter, right? That, 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 that's quite the segue into really what I'm looking to say. Um, and then he ramps it up. It's not like he wants to be more apologetic about it. Um, again, in the bigger scope of Luke's gospel, Jerusalem is just getting that much closer. Again, we're somewhere roughly around three months out from the cross events. So he's not looking for great polished segues here. The point is the time is getting more intense, and so is his interaction, and purposely so. He follows it with more assault. Verse 40, you fools. Again, 37, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. You fools. Then he goes on to say, 
did you not, uh, did not he who made the outside make the inside also, but as alms, give those things that are within? Then in verse 42, he pronounces three straight statements of judgment regarding these foolish individuals or the Pharisees. Verse 42, woe number one, or statement of judgment number one, but woe to you, Pharisees. For you tie the mint and the rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. Now, again, appreciate just how bad this is feeling in the room. To say to someone who is the most ardently religious, to say to them, point blank, you're wicked, you're foolish, and you don't love God. When they, if their whole identity culturally is bound up to its absolute antithesis, the opposite of that. They live their whole life to make you think that they do. Then he moves forward in verse 4 too. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. The next pronouncement of woe, the second statement of judgment to everybody sitting there. And it seems to be a one-way conversation at this point. Verse 43, woe to you. For you love the best seat in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace. Verse 44, he just ramps it up yet again. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves. And the people walk over them without even knowing it. Right? So they're walking across to their own destruction, falling in. It leads people to death. And so at this point, with this sense of awkwardness, you could have probably heard a pin drop in the room, or you look over at each man at table and you could see kind of the smoke proverbially coming out of their ears, thinking, how dare you? We asked you to come here, right? And this is what I have to say to you. This is how the dinner party is going at this point in time. And the lawyer is our next man who is on the scene. So here he is, and this is where our text begins this morning. In this same dinner scene, the lawyer feels a need to kind of step forward. Um, and, And he feels the need to say something along the effects of what we'll see in the text is, you know, um, hey, you know... It's not just the Pharisees here that you are offending. Now, again, in a moment, we'll get to what he means by that and what angle he's coming at this same dinner conversation from. But to fill out the picture just a little bit culturally, historically, so you can kind of distinguish the characters who are at play here. We have our Lord, we have Pharisees, and then we have this lawyer. So what is the distinction exactly of each character in order to grasp how they're conceiving of this dinner affair? Or at what point is each one feeling the stinging rebuke and the sense of, hey, now he's stepping not on just your toes, but now he's stepping on mine. And the lawyer wants Jesus to know, hey, this is exactly what you're doing. I get it. Maybe you want to say something over here, but hey, that's not the only people you're starting to offend in the room. So to fill it out just a little bit, consider, uh, again, we, we have covered the, the lawyer before a few chapters ago, maybe even twice by now in Luke's gospel, we have covered the concept or the role of the lawyers and the way that they approach dialogue with Jesus. So, but just by way of refresher so that you can remember, 
what exactly is at stake for the lawyer in this event as he wants Jesus to know, you're starting to offend me. Consider, or, or rather remember, that the lawyers, particularly here in this scene as well, are by profession theologians. So they make their living by performing, you know, solid exegesis and application of the law. This is, you know, their craft. You can think of them maybe in time and space from the first century to now. You could think of them maybe as the local seminary professors. That just to put kind of an anachronistic perspective, perspective on it, that, that they're, they're the profs. So it's like one thing to kind of rebuke maybe some pastor over here, maybe is less trained, but like over here now, you're really stepping on the theological school. And we give our lives to that. So, you know, I get it. You're, you have this to say over here to this guy, perhaps, but you're starting to even offend, you know, the rest of us, the class of theologians. So the distinction between the lawyer then and the Pharisee is, again, the Pharisees are militantly religious, but honestly, mostly they are comprised of lay people. They don't, they don't earn their living as being theologians or professional professors of teaching and expounding upon the Old Testament law. They're not making their living, most of them, not that way. Mostly it is a lay class of people, ardently religious, militantly so. But then you have this class of law professor or lawyers who do make teaching the law their trade. So with that sense of now the Pharisee who was there, we're not sure of his profession, but we know that he belonged to the Pharisees. Indeed, he is militantly religious. But now you have a lawyer who is a theologian in the room, and he wants Jesus to know that not only are you right now offending the Pharisaical laity who invited you to come into their home and dine, but you are now beginning to offend the professional practitioners of theological education. So with that sense of, 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 I don't know, nobility about his craft, the sense of posturing that I know what I'm talking about, even if he doesn't. And from what you've said so far, you're starting to offend even the knowledgeable. With that sense of um, unease, and awkwardness in the room. Let's begin reading the text as he speaks to our Lord. Verse 45. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, right? Woe to you. Woe to you. Woe to you. You're like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without even knowing it. Teacher, In saying these things, you insult us also. Now, the lawyer, again, we don't know, just like the Pharisee in a sense, we don't know what the the way it sounded. We don't know how it sounded when it came out, when the lawyer felt the need to speak up on behalf of his colleagues or on behalf of everybody in the room and kind of vindicate the whole religious scene at dinner. We don't know exactly what was going on because in one sense, right, he remains um, civil. 
in his exchange with Jesus. You notice he calls him teacher. So in some sense, the lawyer, the professional theologian in the room, speaks of Jesus as though he were a colleague. Right? Notice the text carefully, because this plays into how our Lord responds. Notice the text carefully. Teacher. So in some measure, he acknowledges him as a colleague. Nonetheless, the exchange is to be viewed as an initial attempt to take Jesus to task. Have you ever been in a conversation with, like, with someone like that? Surely you have. Where there's some sense of feigned respect, or some sense of professional um, uh, decorum that you keep in exchange, and you're talking about something, but there's a, clearly a comment behind a comment in the discussion. So you remain within your roles, remain within the right sphere of the exchange, but everyone, between everyone, I mean maybe you and this other person, you both know you're both talking about something in a certain way that you hope I, you understand what I'm trying to say to you, and the other person's looking at you like, I get what you're trying to say to me, um, and I hope you get what I'm trying to say to you. This is kind of the level of the discussion at this point in time, as he defers to Jesus in this sense of acknowledging him to be, yeah, a teacher. Now, as we're reading it, it also is um, kind of, you can think of the lawyer as saying something to the effect here when he, he helps him understand that maybe you don't understand what you're doing in your speech. See how he says, in saying these things, so um, maybe you don't get what you're doing here or, or just how heavy-handed your speech seems to be. In other words, the lawyer tells Jesus, you have bit off more than you can chew here. And I want to say it in some sense gently. Now, in reading the text, again, it's a bit like, for us, the readers in the 21st century, it's a bit like reading email, which is constantly the critique of email. You don't know the tone of the person when you're reading the email, right? And we could add that in, you know, infinitum to every thread that is on the Internet. You don't know the tone of the person, right? You're not there to, like, see the body language. You're not there in order to hear the tone and the way in which it's being delivered. But our Lord, he clearly is present and it's being said to him. And so, the sensing this comment behind the comment, which is cloaked in this sense of civility, Jesus has one goal, to strip back this sense of public decorum, and once again, get to the heart of the matter. Just like he did with the Pharisee over the dishes. Now he's going to move forward in dialogue with the lawyer and get directly to the heart of the matter. Enough with the cordial pretend discussion points. Let's go to task then, if I've bitten off more than I can chew. And so he begins his very purposeful attack. Notice verse 46. You can just picture the scene, can't you? Here's the lawyer. He thinks he's made a really swift and sharp move, helping Jesus learn to tone it down a bit. And he's waiting for the response. And then Jesus responds. And he said, verse 46, and he said, Woe to you lawyers also. Now again, 
Think of the anticipation of what the man was perhaps thinking. Just a quick word will tone this situation down, and it's enough coming from a theological class of educators to really calm this learned guy down. Chill on the talking points at dinner. You're starting to offend even us. You know, the comment behind the comment is, lest we come after you. And so with that, he takes his talking points. Well, I didn't mean not to. No, 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 you're starting to offend us. Like I said, well, I didn't mean not to. This is the way and the pace of the discussion that our Lord then goes after. What follows then in the passage from this very open, well, if you thought that I meant to not offend you, you have calculated this conversation wrongly. Because he moves from the sense of judgment from the Pharisees. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Hey, you're insulting me. Woe to you then also. And so what moves in the passage this morning for the next few moments of our time together is Jesus' purposeful offense. And again, it is a purposeful offense. He didn't take any time to wait until things were in a better condition in the dinner room in order to talk about how dirty the cup is on the inside. He got right to it before dinner was even served. And here he transitions directly to confronting the lawyer as well. So it's very purposeful and it is aggressive to offend the sensibilities of the theologically educated class. He wants to offend every last lawyer in the room. And so with that said, notice his rebuke is really threefold. And and we'll see it through the text. It's very easy to read. It's very easy to grasp. But we'll try to take one bit at a time. There is something we need to pause and consider. But notice the very first of our Lord's attack against the lawyers is against their legalism. Right? It goes hand in hand with the craft or the work of a legal mind, theologically speaking. Jesus wants to attack the legalism that comes with it. Look at verse 46 more fully. And he said, then... Woe to you lawyers also. In other words, be offended. And the reason why you should be offended, and I'm here to offend, is for you load people with burdens hard to bear. And you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Now, the entire statement that he just leveled at the lawyer is severe. And, 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 of course, as you read it, even in the beginning portion, it's really bad. For you load people with burdens hard to bear. That's not even, like, a good word, right? That's, that, that's not a positive thing. Nonetheless, the accent or the real sting to the lawyer is in the second part of the verse. So, so part A is not great. It's not great that our Lord looks at them and says, you load people with burdens that are too hard to bear. It's not like, good job, but I have this against you. The entire thing is bad. That's a bad move. But what's even worse that makes the first that bad? Notice in verse 46, you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. You see, the, the, the entire conversation from the Pharisee and the lawyer then comes to bear together. It goes right along with the sense of cleaning the outside of the cup, but not the inside. It's the 
hypocrisy angle. That's what he's dealing with, the religious class, either ardently religious folk or the theologically educated class. What he's driving at in both instances, so the lawyer he keeps in the room, I'm not done with you yet either. You can share in this conversation just like he shared in yours. Everybody here is what he's driving at. It's a hypocrisy angle with you. I'm offended. Be offended. Because just like the Pharisee, you have your own way of presenting yourself to the public that isn't sincere. Now, consider just for a moment, this I want to pause on just briefly. But I I want us to consider um, the way in which, like, the lawyers can interact. Or or we could even say, if we fast forward, we could say something the way that perhaps uh, ministers uh, can interact with others uh, through the teaching ministry. Or, or, Or the lawyers of this time can interact with the public or the Pharisee through their teaching ministry. I want us to consider just briefly the nature of spiritually abusive leadership. I I want us to consider that just briefly from this text. Uh, Again, why? Why do I want to pause on that? And and it's not too long, but for a few moments. Why? Because that's what we're dealing with in 46. And we're really dealing with the Pharisees as well. Though we don't know his role and his occupation, um, he is in some ways, or the Pharisee would be in some ways the result of the lawyer. The spiritual life of the Pharisee would be crafted and and, and kind of articulated in the way that he's going about his Pharisaism by the teaching ministry as well of lawyers. So so you have this picture here that emerges that is necessary, I think, for us to consider. Again, look at the nature of the spiritually abusive leadership of the lawyer in verse 46. You load people with burdens hard to bear. That's what you do. And, And worse yet... You yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Now, there are two points I want us to consider, or or perhaps I want us to expose, about spiritually abusive leadership. And, And this is in picture I hope you can see with verse 46. Number one, there are two things I want to give. Number one, and this is, again, about spiritually abusive leadership. Number one, it creates micromanaging laws which substitute legal codes and external conformity for biblical wisdom and persuasion. I'm going to read it quicker because sometimes when I read it really slow, I lose half of everyone. But I want us to think deeply on this. And and I I put some questions out through my study for our small groups to consider and meditate on some of the implications of these texts in Luke. And so I hope that if there's things that I'm not detailing as I go through it and I'm giving the larger pieces, I hope your small groups get together and work on some of these thoughts together because it affects all of us. But number one, once again, what is the, is the, the nature of abusive spiritual leadership. It is, number one, it creates micromanaging laws 
And what's worse, again, that, that's what in 46a, for you load people with burdens hard to bear. That's what you do. That's what abusive leadership does. You load people with burdens. Not rightfully, wrongly. They're hard to bear. And so it creates micromanaging laws which substitute legal codes or external conformity for biblical wisdom and persuasion. What's so hurtful about the exchange from biblical persuasion and instead of of offering biblical persuasion from the text itself, the individual or the minister or the group or the leader takes persuasion out and substitutes in legal codes and conformities, external conformities. And it's so abusive on the one side because it's abusive to the point of denying the faith, will, and intelligence of those they shepherd. It's hurtful to those they lead because not only is it hurtful by providing and forcing undue and unnecessary burdens that micromanage people, that even the thought of micromanaging those you lead is insulting by denying the faith the will and intelligence of those they shepherd. In other words, you won't figure this out. Jesus in you is not enough. You're not able to follow the arguments. You're not able to be persuaded. We're just going to create a cage whereby you must thrive and live in because you can't do it. That is spiritually abusive Leadership, and that's what the lawyer is being rebuked over. You load people with burdens hard to bear. It's spiritually abusive. But look at worse yet, and that's why I say part A is bad enough to create micromanaging laws which substitute legal codes and external conformities for biblical wisdom and persuasion. I'd rather just not go through all that and create a law or external code that you must conform to in order to know you're holy. Worse than that is the second part of the verse. That's where the, the, the worst sting comes from in the work of the lawyer's ministry. It says, and you yourselves, it's bad enough you do this to those you lead, but you yourselves, you guys, the ruling class, the educated, the theologians, you guys, Do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. In other words, the second mark of spiritually abusive leadership is it creates the micromanaging laws for the purpose of giving the impression that they themselves actively keep such legal codes. That's the brilliance of the theologically educated class or 
maybe we'd just say at some points, the minister who creates the spiritually abusive environment. It sheds a light on him by assumption that if it's coming to you this way, it must be a driven on from his personal inner piety. In other words, legalism makes the minister look more holy or more pious because the assumption is, man, if you can think that like that and speak so authoritatively in this way for us to follow, you must be way out front, of which he would give a hearty amen to. That's what Jesus accentuates as even worse than bad teaching or bad external conformity or bad micromanaging. The reason behind it is what makes it so much worse. The reason, again, is to promote or to give the impression to those that receive such codes that the codes come to them from within the heart of their leaders. In other words, the codes express the inner piety of the spiritual elite. Now, there's two last pieces I want to expose about what our Lord is saying in verse 46. Again, micromanagement, 46a, all for a spiritual illusion about yourselves who give them, which is even worse, 46b. That's how the text is working. And that's why he says, you know, hey, teacher, and saying what you said to that guy, you're kind of insulting us also. Good, then be offended. Because, you know, I want everybody to get some. What you do is not so great either. And in some ways, right, you, you can then picture the Pharisee, if you were set in the context of the ministry of the lawyer, it would make sense why he's living the way he's living. Bearing burdens that he simply cannot keep. Remember what his issue was right there? So he's like, well, I can't believe you didn't wash your hands before you went to dinner. Oh, well, I washed them in this way. No, 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 that's not washing. You got to wash like this. You got to put your hand up like this, tilt it like that. Wait till the water's about to drip off, swing it back around and catch it in his hand. That spiritual washing, that's in line with the conformity of our standards. Where did you get that? Uh, kind of the ministry like the lawyers. Jesus steps back and the lawyer says, hey, you're starting to offend me. And he's like, you should be offended. What you do is you create this kind of a context for people to live in only for the purpose of giving the illusion to the people who follow it ardently every day. Hey, psst. You want them to think you do it too. And that it stems from the internal piety and heart for God that you supposedly have. But you and I both know, woe to you. You're just seeking to micromanage them and give a false impression of yourself. That's legalism. So... There's two last pieces of the text before we move on from this. Is simply this, spiritually, or, or whether in reality, uh, spiritual micromanagement is driven on by two opposite things of what you would seem, right? It would come from the minister's piety. His own internal walk with the Lord is why he speaks to you in such legal terms and creates such a micromanaging environment for you to live in. He must be the wise sage. He must be the godly pastor. But rather, that's not really what micromanagement is to indicate micromanaging laws or what we would call as legalism. 
is driven on by absolutely two other pieces. Number one, it is driven on not by humility and piety, but pride of place. This is why Jesus says, woe to you. If you're going to stand up, then stand up. I'm going to give you some good and hard. Pride of place. How so? Because again, the point on the accent of 46B is it gives the impression. That's what you're about in ministry. That's what you're about in your education is impression giving. You want others to think certain thoughts about you that simply are not true. Through your legalism, you create an illusion, distortion of mirrors that make you seem humble and pious, but really what's in your heart is pride of place. Number two, the second avenue that spiritually abusive leadership that comes with micromanaging those who follow, that exchanges legal code and external conformity and standards for biblical wisdom and persuasion springs from number two, a lack of love. That's 46A. You load people with burdens hard to bear. You don't care about them. You don't care about their spiritual progress. You don't care about their maturity in Christ. You don't care about their understanding. You're all about illusion giving. Building your own empire. Making sure they understand there's a distinction between their piety, who really love God, and then them. That comes from hatred of your neighbor. There is a lack of love in the heart of the minister. He has a despising nature toward those that he shepherds. He creates a burden that he knowingly, that, that he knows they cannot bear. Now, finally, as we kind of segue away, and then I have one last piece to share about the legalism of 46, and it's simply this. While legalism takes many forms, I think we need to be careful here because legalism does. And I, and I hope we get together in our small groups and carve some of this out in discussion. But legalism takes many forms, both liberal and conservative. If we think that conservative orthodox confessional and credo preaching creates a legal environment... And so we go over and we think legalism or, or we think liberalism or progressivism doesn't. You're simply naive and you're exchanging one set of legalism for another. Both conservatism and liberalism create forms of legalism. And either way, the arrogance of legalism is always the same. And that's what it is. Arrogance. And the arrogance is this. Legalism seeks to elevate human righteousness to the level of God's righteousness through external appearances. That's what legalism does. Whether it's on the left, like you need to make sure you recycle or you're not saved. Issues that come in hand like that or over here. You've got to make sure you have a tie on, a suit on, or you can't watch X in order to be saved. Wherever it is on what you hold as sacrosanct, both forms, both schools, whatever it is, creates and driven on by an arrogance that says we can elevate human righteousness to the level of God's righteousness through external appearances. And in the end, what occurs? Look at the people right there in verse 46 one last time. For you load people with burdens, and look at what happens to them. It's too hard to bear. 
What happens in legalism that we spout off at others or environments we create? It devastates the sincere individual in the middle. They're looking for a path to follow. They're looking for God's righteousness. And instead you offer them this faux righteousness that distorts true salvation that is by grace through faith alone. Whether it's from a liberal wing of school of thought or an ultra-conservative wing school of thought, whatever it is, in the end, it comes from the same source, pride of place, and it has the same effect. It distorts what is freely offered to you in the gospel. It distorts that righteousness comes from no other means but through faith by grace alone. The burden that is created in legalism is simply too hard to bear. Well, you're starting to offend me. Good. Be offended, he says. I've got more where that comes from. One last comment on legalism, and then I really do mean it this time. We will move forward. And that is simply this, and it's kind of just a, a, a footnote that needs to be reinforced. It's not the point of this particular text, but it is a footnote that I hope your eyes drop down at the bottom of the page and read this time. And it is simply this. We need to make an important distinction between legalism and ethical teaching from Holy Scripture. That's an important thing to keep in mind here. In other words, we are in no better situation as the people of God. If we resist legalism and micromanagement in spiritually abusive environments only to find ourselves thereby against any and all specific applications of biblical principles whatsoever. We are, I cannot emphasize that enough. We are in no better situation to say, well, I'm not a legalist. What does that even mean then? What do you mean by that? It matters that we get this right because every time a minister applies a text of Scripture to your life in a practical or concrete measurable way to a specific situation, we cannot cry foul. That's legalism. We would have to go back to the New Testament portions, let alone the Old Testament prophets. But if even if we read in Paul's language himself in his epistles, we would find that to be way outside the bounds of accusation of a minister or the role of a preached word. To say you can make no specific applications would be absolutely incorrect because we just call it legalism so we can get out from underneath it. I leave that footnote with you because you'll see that in the questions for the small groups. I hope we're able to use them and it benefits our discussion. We need to think through. When I sit on Lord's Day underneath the Word, is every specific application and calling sin, sin? If it's, this is incorrect, immorality, that's incorrect, that's sin, that's against God. Drinking abusively, that is a sin, that is against God. Legalism, no. No, no, no. Is that what we're hearing? Is that what we're discussing in verse 46 of Luke chapter 11? Answer is no. I could be here all day and I can't. The second of our Lord's attack is then directed at the lawyer's hatred of the word of God. 
that's where this comes from, right? To, to be spiritually abusive to other people by creating man-made codes to micromanage your congregants comes from a place of a lack of faith at best and a hatred of the word of God at worst. Verse 46, I got more for you, so stay standing, right? Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. He goes on, so you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. That, that's the key piece of understanding the text, verse 48. For they killed them and you build their tombs. Think about the tandem relationship that Jesus is describing. Verse 49, therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. You see, to put in historical context for us, the building of the beautiful tombs, that marked the great prophets of the Old Testament. Here are the lawyers, right? They're the theologians. And what they're overseeing is the endeavoring of building the tombs that mark the great graves of the prophets. This was seen as an act of national piety. Another, again, another external form of national piety. We love God. We love his word, and we love the ministry of the men who brought it to them. Do you see? We prove it. Look at what we're doing, once again, externally. We're building the ornate tombs in which the prophet's bones can be placed, or at least in honor of the prophets who passed. That's the attitude here. Well, you can't say that we don't love God. Look at what we're doing. And with that little bit of a move, maybe in the heart of the the lawyer, Jesus allows them in this moment at this dinner party no such pride of place. Notice once again, I want to show you just how you see it in, 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 verse, um, in verse 47 and 48, real quickly. For you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. Boom. Historical point one. Your fathers killed the prophets. So, so that's, that's one piece of the equation here of why you can't now come and say you love me. Lo- well, you love God. You love the word. You love the men who brought it to you. No. 47. You kill, your fathers killed them. Verse 48. Now, in between 47 and 48, you can see the lawyer is like, oh, we're great. We're great. Look what we're doing. Okay, right. Your fathers, I'm going I'm to deconstruct that attitude. Your fathers killed them, verse 48. So you are witnesses and, here's the piece, consent to the deeds of your fathers. What? Yes. And let me summarize, 48. For they killed them and you build their tombs. So, in other words, he connects the dots historically between their fathers who actually killed the prophets and the generations who now, as their sons, are building their tombs. Essentially saying, your fathers killed the prophets who brought the word of God to the people and you now stand here and finish the job by burying them. 
He's connecting the two ministries. Rejection in one form, kill them. Carry on the rejection, let's bury them. But what about how nice we're making the tombs look? It doesn't matter. Again, Jesus is essentially saying here, don't kid yourselves. You do not actually want anything to do with the word of God or his prophets who bring it to you. Case in point, the great prophet of the word of God stands before you at this dinner party. But we're building their tombs, but I stand right here. And in three months' time, I'll be crucified. Finally, the third portion of our Lord's attack. They love legalism. They love micromanaging others because it gives that false sense of personal piety. Again, whatever they force on you and the tie that binds you down and the burden that they create that is so heavy must be assumed upon the listener or must be assumed upon the follower that the spiritual leader is way, way, way out front. So it creates that spiritually abusive relationship of codependency. The the legalism puffs up the speaker or the leader while it burdens the people, but yet they thrive together in a legal spirit. The sincere all the while die from the bird gets too heavy. And then it's all a facade that they love the word of God. That's why they do these things. And Jesus clearly says, you want nothing to do with it, just like your fathers before you. And finally, it culminates in this final accusation at the end of the dinner party. And then the scene kind of closes. Verse 52, woe to you, lawyers. For you have taken away the key of knowledge. Think about that. We are the key of knowledge. We make way for you to know something. That's what we do. That's who we are. We're the theologians. This is your work, to not make clear, but to distort, to not make known, but to hide away. Woe to you. He says, for you have taken away. You've made nothing clear. You've made nothing plain. You've made nothing known. You take away the key of knowledge. And then the final culminating rebuke as well just follows. You didn't enter yourselves. What? What? How do we... That's what we do. That's who we are. Of course we... What? You didn't even enter yourselves. And then back to the burden bearing of 46, he says, and you hindered those who were entering. That's who you are. You're spiritually abusive. You have taken what God planned through the law to create this sense that, to destroy the pretense that salvation comes through self-effort. And you have taken what God purposed in the law, and you have so distorted it to those who were even sincere in the way, that even now they cannot hear the gospel. The great freedom announcement that Christ proclaims That the law crushes. 
And the purpose of the law crushing is to drive us freely under the offer of the gospel. It is to destroy to you the pretense of self-effort and self-salvation. It is to crush you and to drive you to Jesus Christ who offers it to you freely, free of charge. That comes to you, what you seek in the law can only come to you through faith by grace alone. And you lawyers, take that, what God intended, and you distort it so badly through micromanaging legalism that folks can't even hear the freedom of the gospel. The gospel is a free announcement. He is freely held out to you. And this morning, if you are in any way, shape or form, going down the path of the pretense of self-deliverance through codes of conduct, church attendance, external conformity and behaviors, you're missing the key of knowledge. The gospel is free. It comes as an announcement, not of what can you do for me, but as an announcement of what I have done for you. It's received. It's not performed. Let's pray. Father, thank you.